In 2018, Cranfield Alumni held its annual conference at HSBC in Canary Wharf, London. The conference theme was inclusive talent management towards a new norm. This podcast is the edited presentation of the first session called the HSBC Case Study Presentation. The stream of evidence does suggest that there is a link between diversity and business performance. We have to affect people's thinking, not just give them the recipe book. So it's like glass ceilings within glass ceilings. The HSBC case study presentation was presented by Professor Sue Vinicum, CBE, Chair in Women and Leadership at Cranfield School of Management, and Professor Kim Turnbull-James, Chair of Leadership and Executive Learning at Cranfield School of Management. We'll hear from Professor Sue Vinicum, but first, Rachel Harris, Head of Alumni Relations at Cranfield University, welcomes you to the conference. Welcome, everybody, this morning. Absolutely delighted to welcome you here today to HSBC and to the 2018 Alumni Conference, Inclusive Talent Management Towards a New Norm. So nothing really more from me other than to introduce you to our chair for today, Professor Susan Vinicum, Chair in Women and Leadership at Cranfield School of Management. Please join me in offering Sue a warm welcome. Good morning and lovely to see so many of you and it's great to see a gender diverse audience as well so that's great. So in fact we are kicking off with looking at gender, uh, a session that will be led by Kim and myself. We really moved on from thinking about the business case for gender diversity but let me take you back for those of you in the audience who haven't heard it before. I mean Overall, there's an absolutely compelling case for not just gender diversity, but diversity in all its different dimensions, dimensions that we're covering today at this conference. You know, the world has become much more global, much more complex. At one level, you could say it's just a case of social justice. Having so few women, if I just focus on gender as the example here, because obviously I'm most familiar with that, if we just focus on gender... Given that girls outperform boys at every level of education, and up to about the mid-1990s, we were saying we don't see women in leadership because they don't have the human capital, they don't have the skills, the knowledge, the qualifications. It's quite clear they do. They get into all the big corporates and all the big companies. So at graduate entry level, unless you're sort of a kind of STEM-type company, by and large, it's at parity. Um, But what happens is immediately from first promotion onwards, we see women not being promoted and being dropped off. So you have this absolute pipeline of where women actually get kicked out of the system, as it were, and, you know, men dominate at the top. If we think about it, the business case, as I've just said, is a very strong business case. I mean, first of all, the world is very global, so we should have people from different parts of the world. Your company should reflect 
the marketplace in which you're working. We had a very, very good example at the time because mother care at that time was doing extremely badly, very financially challenged, and wasn't it interesting? There were absolutely no women on that board. And uh, it's kind of interesting when you think about who mother care caters for in the marketplace. So actually having a board that reflects your marketplace does actually make sense. There's also been a stream of research from all my financial colleagues in business schools who just love these massive correlational studies and regression analysis. The stream of evidence does suggest that there is a link between diversity and business performance in its broadest form. So whether you use return on equity, return on investments or whatever. So you've got that, you know, it's uh, better on linking up with your customers. You have, there's a lot of work of which we have been part of in showing that actually having gender diversity and diversity on your boards leads to better corporate governance. Having different perspectives around the table mean that people make different contributions. And so you actually end up with better decision-making, greater innovation. There's quite a lot of research to show that generally, and I think we have to be careful about putting women in one box and men in another, but often women have a different attitude towards risk. They take a more longer-term view than men do. So all in all, there's a very kind of powerful argument for actually saying that diversity is really important in our leadership teams and throughout the organisation. And as I said, we're going to kick off with gender diversity. So with that, I want to give you a kind of more specific introduction into the background to gender diversity. Last year, we decided to do a 10-year retrospective and look at the kind of trends. Instead of just doing a report focusing on this year's figures, what are the trends happening? And here was where we saw something very interesting, that whilst the number of women NEDs coming onto FTSE 100 boards has risen tremendously, significantly over the last few years there's a higher percentage of male NEDs are getting the senior jobs. And by the senior jobs, I'm talking about chairing the board, about being senior independent director. So I was very concerned about that. So it's like glass ceilings within glass ceilings. So actually, I had a conversation with Philip Hampton, and he said, well, actually, I'm not sure whether being a SID is is really good progress to a chair to be debated. I won't discuss now. Um, But why don't you have a look, Susan, at at who heads up committees? So we did have a look at that this year. In fact, a quarter of the women actually head the committees. In fact, a number of them are actually heading up the REMCO, which I think is a really interesting committee. On the FTSE 250, I think I've already kind of hinted, the headline figure has increased marginally. I mean, bear in mind, when we started looking at FTSE 250 back in 2010, they were some way behind FTSE 100. But, you know, they're not really gathering pace as we would like them to. And I would argue that it is surely easier to get an NED on a FTSE 250 than the FTSE 100. And as I've just said, the female executive directorships have actually dropped. So it's challenging. Are we going to meet these targets of Hampton Alexander by 2020? I'm not sure. I think the jury's out. I think FTSE 100 are doing well on the women on boards, but... We'll just have to see. I think the key message now is it's getting women into the executive pipeline. This really is a big challenge. 
Philip Hampton made this comment that the expectation is in every business is that the selection process is based entirely on merit. Well, I think a few of us, because I've got several colleagues who are researchers here in the audience, I think several of us have talked about the myth of meritocracy in our organisations. Um, so this is really underpinning this pipeline problem. This is how it all really boils down to. Is it really meritocratic, the way that we actually manage our promotion process for everyone in the organisation? And the answer to that, to me, is clearly no, but it is complicated. We don't consciously trip people up, but that happens. What are the ways that companies have generally addressed this issue of the lack of women in, in their executive pipelines? How have they tried to encourage more women? I think there's four major ways that your own companies uh, may indeed be engaging in these different ways. Many of them have amazing websites most companies, if not all companies, tend to have what they call affinity groups or networks, not just for women, but we're talking about women in this session. So have these women's networks so that women can come together and give each other support. There are women's leadership programs and there is the unconscious bias training, which uh, we are very critical of. I get very irritated by organizations standing up and saying you've got bias what you need to do is just roll out unconscious bias training Doyen, who's an expert on this and led a big review of unconscious bias training on behalf of the equalities and human rights commission this year and actually has written a report on it um, some of you may be you know have your own experience of unconscious bias training unless it's really conducted with a specific objective in mind it really can be a waste of time. And actually, even worse than that, it can actually have adverse effects. We call this kind of moral licensing. I've done the unconscious bias training, so I know what my biases are. No need to worry about me. So these are the kind of general approaches. One of the global professional service firms with whom we've been working for many years, in 2013, 2014... (coughs) They said, we're doing a tremendous number of things. We're working really hard on increasing the number of women partners in our global professional service firm. And they asked the analytics department to do a trajectory of how well they were doing. And as you can see, it had picked up from 2008. They were at 14%. And what was quite shocking was that when they did the trajectory... By 2020, they would have increased by 1% in six years. And this was very alarming. And the managing partner of the firm said, this is absolutely shocking. We've invested all of this. Why isn't it working? It's not working because if you don't actually challenge this system, if you don't change the actual behaviours that make up the recruitment, the performance management the promotional system, nothing really will change. And what they did, it was a, it's a fascinating exercise. The managing partner got the DNI department to look at different scenarios. And the one that actually was, uh, you know, most striking was that they could actually increase dramatically from 14 to 35% over the course of six years if at every level in that organisation from now on that the percentage of women promoted 
was proportional to the women in the pipeline at that level which makes really good sense. And I was just explaining this a few months ago at Cranfield and saying, you know, we've got to have disruptive change. We've got to go for radical action. And somebody in the audience from a major consulting firm said, Sue, if you think that's radical, we're talking about banning all male promotions for the next two years. (laughs) So beware. So I, I do want to finish on this note, but I do want to just say... I think that the culture is changing in terms of, actually, the appetite for quotas. When we were on Davis in 2010, Lord Davis actually consulted widely with roundtables for all the stakeholders in the UK, and about 90% of people across the UK were against quotas. I think that's changed now. I think people are realising that all our efforts don't work because they somehow get diluted and I think on that note is a very good way of kind of passing over to Kim to talk about how you manage this inertia how do you actually stop these initiatives from kind of slipping back thank you thank you Sue well done course if we had the answer that would be great wouldn't it so this is really us trying to pull together our understanding of the state of the art of the field um, what we can do and using this as a case study of what is possible Um, but I should say at the very beginning what works in your organization has to be tailored to your organization it's got to be very much built on the context in which you are and that's part of the work that at Cranfield we do So we're working with clients and really trying to understand what is going on in their organisation. Now, we're going to look in a moment at um, at this HSBC host case study. And what they really realised and what really kicked this off was an analysis. And I think things start with data is a very, very good place to start. They did an analysis of their top-rated talent and what was happening to their top-rated talent. And very clearly what they noticed was that the top-rated female talent was in the pipeline for significantly longer than the top-rated male talent. So this is not a question of women who have yet to to make it. They're already in pretty big jobs, and yet they're not getting the promotions that their talent rating would expect. So that was the starting point. We were very fortunate that their then um, global HR director uh, knew us and said, come in and see what we can do together. So that was a really helpful starting point. So how did we think about the task that they faced us up with? For me, my interest is in leadership and leading change in organisations. So I want to just step back for a second and talk a little bit about that because That's really the fundamental. If we just think of it as a sort of a talent management system, I think we're going to miss entirely the point of how to intervene in organisational change. We really need to see increasing the number of women in executive positions as a change management problem. It's actually about fundamental rethinking of what our organisations are doing, not a kind of add-on tweak in order to make sure that a few people are promoted. So imagine that you're in an organisation 
and it's producing some kind of fast food. And I like this because it really simplifies things. Of course, organisations are not quite as simple as that, but we're in a fast food restaurant for the moment. And if you want to really improve it, the chances are you've got a pretty clear idea of what is wrong. And the chances are that in order to improve it, you're going to have some better rules, better practices, make sure that your 16-year-olds are cooking the burgers for long enough and not giving people E. coli. And so what you're going to do is really come up with really good policies and procedures and expect everybody to follow them. If, however, you're in the gourmet food business, what you're probably going to want to do in order to improve that business is to really understand more about the kinds of diverse things that your customers want. You're going to want to get the best chefs, the best marketing people who really can appeal to that kind of population and really improve the kind of menus and things that you're you're offering. So, Again, based on best practice, based on professional insight, we're going to tweak what we do to make it from a one-star to a two-star Michelin restaurant. However, quite a lot of organisational change is more like this. Do you remember when Jamie Oliver went on a quest to change school food? Now, this is the interesting thing. He could have just gone into schools and given all the cooks a better recipe book and left it at that and said, follow the recipes and the school food will improve. However, it's not like a fast food restaurant. That's embedded in big social change, in understanding the politics of the food industry, in understanding the politics of government, in understanding parents' interest in children's food. It's a much, much wider problem. And we would mistake the two things at our peril. If you confuse improving school food with just improving the menus, you would make a big mistake. And in fact, he found, as you will recall, all of those things like parents shoving turkey twizzlers through the railings for their kids to have a proper lunch. This is a big systemic change to produce that kind of really healthy school nation. Now imagine that your job is to improve the health habits of a nation, to get us all off the couch, to get us all eating healthily, walking to work, climbing six floors up, although we weren't given that option, fortunately, this morning. That, that is changing attitudes, changing fundamental understanding. That is a huge shift in thinking because we all can access the diet books. Most of us have gym memberships which we probably don't use as often as the money that we spend would say is justified. So again, it's a different kind of problem. So our proposition is that on the one hand, you know, you can do some pretty complicated things in a technical way, have better policies, better procedures, you know, actually upskill people so they can do things differently and apply for jobs. But a more adaptive challenge, that is really, ad- really social adaptation, changing the system, is that kind of complexity that's involved with moving more people of more diverse nature into senior roles. We have to affect people's thinking, not just give them the recipe book. So this was the mindset that we have in engaging with our clients. On the one hand, I'm just, this is like, it's a puzzle. Let's just get the right policies. Just let's get the right procedures. Let's just tweak something. Let's just make sure that um, we have flexible working practices and we'll get the answer. And on the other hand, it's a much more messy problem. 
And most of us are not trained to enjoy mess. So given a messy problem, we'll probably try and turn it back into something that is more linear rather than something that looks like an explosion. And an explosion can be pretty, but it isn't always. What we're inviting our clients to do is to think about this in that kind of complex way and really think about how the system needs to shift in order to get the outcome that people are asking us to help them with. So Sue talked about starting with senior leaders, and that is really important. I think it's very difficult. I often speak to people in, um, for example, HR jobs, and I say, and how do your ex-co think about this? Well, they're not averse to us doing something about this. Now, that is not really helpful. What you want is an absolutely committed executive team who really see this as essential, that actually having the right talent in the organisation and using the right talent is, as Sue says, an important business case. This is not something that they can afford not to do anything about. You may want to work with your women leaders, but let's be clear about this. We don't see this as fixing the women. These people are very successful, There isn't a lot wrong with the women, actually. (laughs) I might go further than that and say, nothing wrong with the women. Can I just add Mm, a couple of examples? Yes, please do. I mean, Kim has got up there about leadership stereotypes and think manager, think male, which those of us in the academia know have been around for a long time. But let me give you a very perduring stereotype which you all need to challenge. Think leadership, think full-time. People who work part-time, and guess what? 75% of the people in the UK who work part-time are women, do not get into leadership. So, you know, that's really interesting. We have to radically rethink the design of work. And interestingly... If we think of one of the more enlightened countries of the world, Sweden, one of my doctoral students is just doing her data gathering there. And interestingly, what you see is many of the women have two or three children because of, not because of, but they are well supported. As you know, they have a year which they can share between father and mother. But interestingly, even in Sweden in this particular sample, All the senior women work full-time. There's no reason why any job can't be shared. And I know, Kim, you've got some nice examples. I do. I'm I'm, I'm working with a charity at the moment, and the chief executive is two women. And they each work three days a week. I think the charity gets a really good deal because they get six days for the price of five. And they work very, very well together together. And I think that they work in a very collaborative, collegiate way. And I see that expressed in the way they work in their meetings. <coughs> and actually, if, you, if we have a much longer time and I could talk about leadership, which I know some of you have heard me talk about before, that kind of collaborate, collegiate way of working is absolutely essential if you're going to be dealing with complexities in everyday life. So this is a sort of a way of thinking which really challenges our kind of hero leading from the front notion of what somebody at the top of an organisation needs to look like. Now, that's not to say that people don't need figureheads, but it does not need to look like the traditional stereotype that we might have. 
I have to stop because I know I have to let you go and have caffeine now. OK, thank you. Let me just make sure. This podcast on inclusive talent management towards the new norm is the edited version of the HSBC case study presentation at the 2018 Cranfield Alumni Conference. You can find out more about inclusive talent management, Cranfield School of Management, and our work with HSBC at cranfield.ac.uk forward slash SOM. You can also find out about Cranfield's alumni benefits at cranfield.ac.uk forward slash alumni.